Again, it's a joy to be with, here, uh, with you here this morning. Uh, my name is John, um, and uh, I'm thankful that I have the opportunity to, to journey with you through this text. Uh, for those of you guys that are new with us this morning or joining us online for the first time, we've been going through this series on Galatians, um, and this morning we're going to find ourselves uh, nearing the end of chapter 4. Um, and uh, one thing that I want to do to introduce us into this section is I have a bunch of questions that I want to ask you guys because I want you guys to think through this passage with me. The question that I want to start us off this morning is, have you ever found yourself in a difficult situation where you had to choose between loving someone and telling them the truth? Specifically, were you ever caught in this situation where a loved one or a close friend was choosing a way of life or maybe desiring a way of life that you knew would lead to their destruction, their demise? In fact, they truly believed that by choosing this one thing, they would find enjoyment, satisfaction, love that they would feel comfort, that they would feel pleasure, they would finally feel a sense of control. And ultimately, that by choosing this one thing, that they believed ultimately that they would have a better life. But in reality, you knew that this choice that they were making would harm them. It would harm their relationship with you, it would harm their relationship with other people, and it would be very difficult to back out of. In a sense, they were choosing what was expedient. They were choosing an end that was practical, that was convenient for the moment, at the cost of being corrupt or immoral or harmful. In a sense, they they bought into a lie but they need to know the truth. How would you respond? If it meant life or death, would you step in and tell them the truth? Or would you choose what is easy? Would you decide to curb the truth, restraining yourself from actually speaking up for the sake of keeping the relationship? And To some degree, I think all of us have been in this situation before. We felt these feelings of uncertainty. Should we tell them the truth? Whether that be with friends, family members, or loved ones, we've all felt this pressure before. And the reality is, we live in a time where many people feel trapped into choosing between loving others and loving the truth. We feel like if we want to keep the relationship with someone, we need to push the truth aside, somehow offer them this form of love that appears supportive on the outside, but in reality, it's hollow, and it's forced on the inside. So how are we supposed to respond to situations like this? Do we have to choose between the relationship and loving the truth? But maybe we have to modify the question just a little bit. Perhaps the real question is, how vital 
is this truth? Is it really worth risking the relationship for their benefit, for their ultimate good? This morning, we're going to be going through a text where Paul addresses this. For Paul, the truth he speaks is so vital, so crucial, that it would be unloving for him to not speak up. This morning, we're going to see how Paul modeled what it means to actually do both to truly love a people who are choosing a path that would lead to their own demise and still yet genuinely loving them by speaking the truth. So here in Galatians 4, Paul is showing the Galatians that true love is built on the truth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So please turn with me. Um, I'm going to read Galatians 4, 21, and we're going to go all the way and spill over into chapter 5, verse 1. Please follow with me. It'll be on the screens behind us. Galatians 4.21 begins and says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Chapter 5, verse 1 begins and says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul begins this section with this pointed question. He asks, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. If you've been to the Wednesday Bible studies, like I always harp on the pronouns. Who is this you referring to? I think it'll help adjust us and orient us to where this text is, what Paul is doing. It's possible that Paul is talking to the Judaizers, the Hellenized Jews, or the Hellenized uh, Christians. Uh, it could be this blended audience of both the false teachers and the Gentile Christians. The false teachers, the men of James that we see in Galatians 2.12. What is this lie that they have bought into? As Matt taught us last week, these Gentile Christians, these young Christians, 
were duped into believing that faith in Jesus wasn't enough. That the gospel of Jesus Christ wasn't enough to save them. That, in other words, they had to earn what they already had through a different gospel, the gospel of law. But the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it's only through faith in Christ that we may be made right before God. That salvation only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, as we visited in earlier texts from weeks ago, Jesus came to abolish this very religious system that these false teachers were trying to defend. So Paul asks this question, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Paul is using this play on words and he's challenging those who desire to be under the law to not only hear it again, but to learn what the message of the law actually is. So what Paul is demonstrating here, even within this first verse, is that it is loving to promote gospel truth. And it is unloving to promote gospel error. In fact, I want you to look at the tone of this section. I want you to look at chapter 4 and verse 20 and verse 11. Paul says that he is perplexed about them. He says that he is afraid he may have labored, labored over them in vain, but out of a deep, deep love for them, driven by the Holy Spirit, he teaches them that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to experience salvation. that the gospel of law that they're choosing will lead only to their destruction. It cannot save. So what is Paul insinuating here in this first verse? That these false teachers, these Gentile believers who are buying into this false gospel message, that are teaching this false gospel message, that they don't understand that the law that they're committing themselves to They're implying that there's some serious oversight in these false teachers' arguments. Paul's implying that he's surprised that they have chosen the gospel of law over the gospel of Jesus Christ. He asks, do you not listen to the law? I want to focus your attention to these two words that will help us understand this middle section of the text. These two words occur occur nowhere else in the New Testament, and it happens in verse 25 and 24. Um, This first word is corresponds. Uh, It literally means to stand in the same line, to place in the same column. What he's doing with this word is he's saying that I'm going to be building you this table, um, and and I'm going to be bifurcating these two realities into these two separate groups, and I want you to see what we're going to do here. Also, the method of what he's doing in verse 24, there's this other word that is translated allegorically in the ESV, figuratively in the NIV and the CSB. What is Paul saying with this word allegory? Because of the historical baggage that comes with it, um, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of pages written about this word allegorically um, that try to prove this isn't the way that so-and-so did it, this isn't the way that so-and-so did it, Paul's actually doing this. Um, But really, what what is Paul doing 
with this two-columned table? What is he doing allegorically? He's about to use a well-known narrative of, the is- of Israel's history to explain how the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only saving gospel. One scholar, Douglas Moose, says, what Paul is doing is showing how the narrative can be seen to foreshadow the realities of the new covenant that he's trying to defend here in this argument. So some scholars believe that it's better defined as a typology. And so these two words help us understand that Paul is creating these two columns using Israel's blemished history and saying one is gospel law, one is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see how absurd it is that you're choosing slavery to the law when you had freedom in Christ. You're running away from the true gospel message. It is somewhat important for us um, that, especially in our politically charged culture uh, today, um, that uh, this text is not a commentary on slavery. Uh, This text is providing an illustration Again, using Israel's blemished past to explain the differences between these two covenants, these two gospel messages. One, a gospel of law that only bears enslavement to the law and the gospel of Jesus Christ where there's freedom. So in verse 22, it begins with, it is written. Paul is signifying here that he'll be drawing from this well-worn text of history. It's history that they're familiar with. Specifically, what history is this? This is the birth of Abraham's two sons. So he's going to be pulling from Genesis 16 through 21. He says that one is born to a slave woman, Hagar, and one is born to a free woman, Sarah. And instead of naming these two women in the beginning of his intro, he categorizes them. He focuses on the maternal differences. Paternally, all believers, including the false teachers, possibly believed that they were paternally linked to the inheritance. Because Abraham is their father, we are all connected to the inheritance. But he's saying, no, 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 no. Let's look maternally. Because it's not just the fact that you're linked to Abraham, but it also matters which mother that you're identifying with. And so in verse 23, he discusses that there's so much more going on with just the mothers, but it's also the births. So what is Paul referring to? What is he saying? One scholar says that Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, was born to Abraham by proxy according to the flesh. And Isaac, the son of the free woman, was his son by promise, a living witness to divine grace. He uses this phrase, the son born according to the flesh, which we'll later see refers to Ishmael, was born as a a result of a lack of faith in God's promises. You see, God promised Abraham and Sarah a son, but because of their impatience, because of their doubt and their fear that God wasn't able to produce this promise in their old age, they took matters into their own hands. Sarah gave her servant Hagar to Abraham so that he, Abraham, could have an heir. Hagar then gives birth to Ishmael. 
And I really like how this one scholar writes, the birth of Ishmael was the result of this outworking of this philosophy that God helps those who helps themselves. This was an expedient means. This was an ordinary birth. Ishmael's birth was a natural birth. But years later, God fulfilled his promise. Isaac was born through promise, through the free woman, Sarah, who is naturally barren. So where Ishmael's birth was ordinary, Isaac's birth was extraordinary. Where Ishmael's birth was natural, Isaac's birth was supernatural. And Paul continues to build this two-column table by introducing more and more differences. So if you look at this table, um, I realize that the font will be a little small, so I'm going to run through this individually. But if you look at this table, notice how Paul is building his argument, clarifying the differences between the two realities, the gospel of law and the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a sense, he's saying that one doesn't lead to the other. He's not saying that there's two options to the inheritance, to experience a right relationship with God. He says one leads to divine inheritance and the other leads to enslavement. So where there's the slave woman, there's also, on the other side, the free woman. Where there's one born according to the flesh, There's one born through promise. Where one represents the Mount Sinai covenant, one represents the new covenant. Where one is bearing children destined for slavery, one is bearing children of freedom. Where one is Hagar, one is Sarah. Where one represents the present Jerusalem, the other represents the Jerusalem from above. Where one is in slavery with her children, one is free. Where one is a child of the desolate one, one is a child of promise. Where one is Ishmael, one is Isaac. And get this in verse 29, it just goes down. And it says, uh, where one is considered the persecutor, the other is the persecuted. Where one is the castaway with no inheritance, one is an heir of promise. Where there is gospel of law, the other side is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is explaining here that true salvation in God's supernatural, or true salvation is God's supernatural provision. Therefore, it cannot be naturally achieved. Paul's illustration is clear. People who are seeking freedom through the Mount Sinai covenant, through the law, those represent those that represent the present Jerusalem, you will inherit nothing but disappointment. Just as Hagar and Ishmael were slaves, those who sought salvation from God through the Mosaic law-keeping were choosing enslavement to the law. They were choosing to be slaves. This goes back to to Matt's point from several weeks ago that the gospel is not the truth that we want to hear naturally. Why? Because humanity loves control. We as humans like the ability to gain favor. 
As humans, we have this selfish desire to build our own merit. The true gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of surrender, not a gospel of control. This means trusting and obeying God for his provision, that's supernatural, his provision of Christ, which means that we need to surrender our man-made ways, attempting to naturally earn what can only be supernaturally provided for us, not by our means of payment, but by Christ's, by his blood that we can sing about every week that paid for my sins, that paid for your sins. This is what Paul is communicating to the Gentile Christians that have already placed their faith in Christ. He is saying in verse 27, rejoice. Though you're being persecuted, though you're being fed lies that you need to take matters into your own hands, rejoice that you will receive more than human hands could ever produce. True salvation, again, is God's supernatural provision. Therefore, it cannot be naturally achieved. Verses 28 and 29, Paul continues, and he explains that those who are in gospel error will persecute those who stand for gospel truth. In healthy Christian relationships, gospel truth and gospel error cannot coexist. Why can't they coexist? Why can't we all just get along? Because the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals that all other means of salvation are insufficient. In fact, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ spoils the fun and the advantages others have to try to employ on other people. In John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim and his buddy Faithful, they're, they're, they're journeying on. And there's this one point in the book where they're thrown into prison. And can you guess why? It's so interesting. They're thrown into prison because they wouldn't buy what the people of Vanity Fair were selling, they were walking through this fair, which is called Vanity, and they weren't purchasing anything, so they got so upset. In fact, kind of wistfully, Pilgrim and Faithful were, were confronted, like, why aren't you buying things from us? <laughs> and they just kind of wistfully was like, we, we simply want to buy truth. And this is something the fair didn't want to sell. Get this. In court, they were brought to court because of this. They were considered and identified as disturbers of their trade. For that, faithful, Christian's friend, for not buying from Vanity Fair, for wanting truth and staying away from the things sold at Vanity Fair, faithful was scourged, He was beaten. The text says that he was lanced with knives. He was beaten with stones. He was pricked with swords. And finally, he was burned to ashes on a stake. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the reality we live in. 
the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we believe, according to 1 Corinthians 1.18, is foolishness to the world. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe are experiencing unfathomable persecution because of their faith in the true gospel. Church, if we want to foster true unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to understand that the true gospel cannot syncretize with error. Gospel truth and gospel error cannot coexist. In fact, I want to read you the song um, that Christian wrote. He composes this song for his buddy Faithful who was martyred. He says, Well, faithful thou hast faithfully professed unto thy Lord with whom thou shalt be blessed. When faithless ones with all their vain delight are crying out under their hellish plights, sing, Faithful, sing, and let thy name survive. For though they killed thee, thou art yet alive. Paul is saying, you brothers, you who have already been considered children of promise, just as Isaac was, your connection to this inheritance, it's not physical. It's spiritual. You are adopted into this family of God, not through what you have earned, but what has been graciously provided through Christ. People who cannot accept this truth, that they can't earn their own salvation, they will be driven to jealousy. They will manipulate you. They will mock you. They will make you feel inferior that you're not good enough. They will make you feel illegitimate and they will persecute you. So what does Paul say our response should be? Paul quotes again from this Genesis narrative, this time in Genesis 21. And some scholars believe that this harsh reference And the way that Paul is structuring his argument here, it suggests that he's responding to the false teachers' arguments by flipping their arguments back on them. Where these false teachers were saying, cast out those unclean Gentiles who are not law abiders, Paul is flipping their argument. Saying, cast out those false teachers who are bewitching you are trying to woo you with words. Paul is saying, free yourselves from their grip. Church, we need to foster gospel unity by standing firm on the truth and exposing the sin and divisiveness of error. So what is Paul communicating here? Who are we supposed to cast out? Are we supposed to enjoy casting out people? No, 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 no. (laughs) He's arguing, or he's not arguing to cast out everyone who disagrees with you. We we wouldn't really have a church if that were the case. Well, what is Paul doing here? He's saying that with our church unity, Paul's addressing that we should be able to know how to tolerate differences and love one another people of different opinions, as long as they're in the safe waters of gospel truth. 
These false teachers were like a bowling ball, somehow escaping out of the bumper lanes completely in another lane. These false teachers were advocating for a denial of salvation through faith in Christ alone. Paul is saying they must be cast out. There are at least three major interpretations of how we are to apply this, how we are supposed to cast out for the sake of gospel unity. Um, and it kind of goes like this. Uh, cast out, one, one view is cast out their teaching. Reject their teaching. Another one is cast them out of fellowship in the sense that they're no longer brothers in Christ. And possibly one that's a lot more heavier than the other two physically, you need to cast them out. You need to get them out of there because their close proximity is affecting the unity of the church. It would seem that Paul's heart is not one that enjoys casting people out. More so, it is that Paul's heart is that the church be unified, valuing the truth of the gospel message. What is this truth that we need to be standing firm on? What is this truth that Paul's implying about? He's saying, we need to know what unifies us. He's saying, we need to know the message of the true gospel. We need to know that there's only one God who is Father, Spirit, and Son. He's saying we need to know that he created everything. He created all. We need to know that we are sinners bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We need to know that because of our sin that we are considered enemies of God. We need to know that Christ, the Son, condescended into the world, took on human flesh, and fulfilled the law on our behalf by living a sinless life. We need to know that Christ is God, fully divine, fully man. We need to know that his crucifixion on the cross paid for sin. We need to know that his death was real. We need to know that his resurrection from the dead was real. We need to know that through faith in Jesus, we have died with him, were buried with him, and are raised to new life in him. We need to know that we could never and will never be able to save ourselves. We need to know that we are his church, that we are his bride, awaiting the day when he returns and will be with him in glory. We need to know the truth of the gospel that unites us as believers. We need to know that it is for freedom Christ has set us free that we need to stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So as we start to kind of conclude our time this morning, I want to identify that there's possibly three different groups of people here. It would be such a shame for us to to go through this passage and just say, okay, we're done. But for you, believer, for you that have maybe fallen away but are in Christ, and maybe for you, this is your first time being here, or maybe you've just never placed your faith in Christ, stay with me. 
Let's talk about how we can apply this text, how we can process this this morning. So for the first group, for those of you who are in Christ, for those of you that hold to the confession that they have been purchased by the blood of Christ, I pray that you find encouragement in this text this morning. Knowing that it's only through faith in Christ alone that we are saved. I want you to remember what unites us. It's the truth of the gospel message. It's the love of Christ that unites us. But I do want to challenge you with something this morning. I want to challenge you guys to foster unity. Foster unity within the church. How do we do that? We need to be in community together. Where's Al at? Maybe Al, oh, what do we need to do? Lean in. in. Okay. (laughs) I love it. It's like my anthem. Um, but how do we foster community? We've got to lean in. We, we need to be in community together. We need to read the Bible together. We need to do theology together. We need to be discipling one another together. We need to be encouraging one another together. We need to be praying for one another together. We need to be serving one another together. This means that we need to be the church we need to understand that being in community, it's not an add-on. It's not a suggestion or extra credit. Don't buy into the lie that Christianity is just a Jesus and me religion. We need to be in community together. If you want to know more about what that looks like, come talk to me. Come talk to any of our members here in this church We want you to be in community. Let's be the church together. For the second group, for our brothers and sisters here in Christ who are struggling in their faith, maybe you've backslid into former habits, trying to earn your salvation all over again, just like these Gentile Christians were being tempted to earn their salvation, leaving the freedom of gospel the true gospel, going into enslavement in our own means, trying to earn your own salvation before God, or maybe you've given in to the pressures and the persecutions of others. You felt the urge to walk away from your faith. I want to encourage you. If you truly are in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, I pray that you find encouragement in this morning's text. Rejoice that you are an adopted heir in the family of God, not by your own doing, but by the grace and mercy of God's provision. And I want to challenge you, just as I challenged the previous group, I want to challenge you to be in community. Find gospel community with people in the church and be nourished together in fellowship, nourished in the word, nourished in uniting around the truth together. Find another brother and sister in Christ who can disciple you, who can say, I've been there in that situation. This is a text of scripture that you can chew on that helped me in this time. Let's pray together. Let's talk about this. Let's follow up. Find gospel community and thrive in it. 
for this final group this morning, for those of you guys that maybe have not placed your faith in Jesus before, maybe this is your first time hearing the truth of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where there's freedom, where you've felt enslaved to your own means of salvation to be right with God by doing these things. I want to challenge you this morning. Keep coming. Keep asking questions. Keep listening to the word that unites us as believers. I want to challenge you guys. Come find me. Come find Matt. Come find any of our church members here. We'd love to talk with you guys about the truth of the saving message of Christ. Our prayer is that God unites us and guides us to be a church that loves others by standing firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ.